Uh, but we are in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 24 through 28. Just a very short passage of Scripture, but a very good one. And um, if you have your Bibles, it's page 927, if you have one of the free Bibles. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would uh, open uh, our eyes uh, and our ears and our hearts to what you would say to us this day, and that we um, might grow uh, in appreciation of your saint uh, Apollos, uh, but above all for the mighty work of your Holy Spirit uh, then and even now in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that we forget is that Acts actually covers a whole big time period uh, from after the death of Jesus. Uh, remember after his, his ascension, he says to the disciples, go and wait, and then Pentecost happens. And so all the way up to the point of Paul uh, in Rome, which is about 60, 61 AD. So it's at least a coverage of 25 years uh, that this book is happening, but there's so much action. I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but I read this book and it seems like it happens, boom, 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 and you kind of gloss over, and Paul stayed two years there. Right? You just don't notice that kind of stuff, and the math is hard to do. But it's over a pretty significant period of time, and what makes that important is Apollos. Because Apollos is from where? He's from Egypt, right? Alexandria, the great city of Egypt, that's mostly in the ocean now, I think. Uh, you can actually go to the, uh, um, to the British Museum, and they've uh, excavated a lot under uh, the Mediterranean and the Nile Delta, and you can uh, pay a lot of money and go see something that looks better in pictures. So uh, you can go do that. Uh, but he's from Alexandria, which was a Greek-speaking city. Uh, and there were, well, by all accounts, there were about 100,000 Jews living in Alexandria at this time. It was a huge, and they had one synagogue, one synagogue. And one historian said that the synagogue in Alexandria was so large, this is the quote, so large, someone had to stand on a platform halfway back with a flag in order to signal the amens in the prayers. And that's how big this synagogue was. And it's not just a place of influence religiously, especially uh, for the Greek-speaking Jews who are living there, uh, but it's also where the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Septuagint, uh, which I actually am grateful for because I use it anytime I preach on the Old Testament, because my Greek's a little bit better than my Hebrew, which is really not saying much. But uh, that is, you can blame Mark Ginolette, who was my Greek tutor uh, in, in seminary. So, it was a 
metropolitan city, lots of trade, lots of stuff going on, lots of history because of Egypt, but also the large Jewish community. So he was a Jew that grew up with a classical education. Uh, he would be familiar with both Jewish culture and Greek culture. And we read here in Acts chapter 18 that he was an eloquent man and he was competent in the scriptures. Verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, what's a Jew in Alexandria doing hearing about the Lord Jesus so soon after Jesus' own life on this earth? Can anyone think of an event that happened earlier on in Acts when people said, I understand them in my own language? Pentecost, right? So the gospel went out from Jerusalem in that Pentecost festival and it made its way within the first two decades of Christianity to Alexandria, Egypt. And so somewhere along the line, Apollos was told the gospel. He became a Christian and he was compelled by the Lord to go uh, and be a missionary. Uh, to go up to uh, Ephesus. Uh, I will also say that there are a lot of holes in this story, uh, which I will, because I want to know things like, why Ephesus? Why does he want to go there? Then he goes there and he ends up going over to Corinth. Uh, but nonetheless, he goes up to Ephesus and uh, we find in verse 25 that he began to speak, well, I'm sorry, 25, he, was being, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And of course, the way of the Lord was an old way. Of, before we were called Christians, what were Christians called? People of the way. They were called people of the way. And so being instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he's really fired up about this. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now that's going to come into play because when he gets to Ephesus, what happens? Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside. Now, I don't think that he's teaching anything heretical because they're not saying they had to pull him aside and correct him, but there was a deficiency somewhere in his teaching concerning the gospel. It may be the fact, it's alluded to this, when he said he had only known the baptism of John, he may have been wholly unaware of the life in the Holy Spirit, of, of what it meant to receive uh, baptism and what it meant uh, after your conversion what the Christian life uh, looked like. And so it seems that Apollos had learned the content of the gospel, but had not grasped its significance and application uh, in his own life. And so it wasn't an issue of, again, error as much as he didn't know as much as he probably should have known before he embarked on a public preaching ministry. Now, the reason why I say it's called the threat, uh, the threat of talent is because this happens a lot in the church. Because uh, I, I, we were talking about a preacher once uh, and among some other Adventers, and someone said, yeah, he's such a great preacher. And another Adventer said, he's a great communicator. Now, he wasn't talking about anybody here, and he was making the point that what actually he has is the natural talent to communicate, but he's not communicating the gospel. There's a big difference between that. And oftentimes, you know, with preachers, they have the ability to get up and make the phone book sound interesting. I'm always amazed when Mike Hill comes, especially if they have an English accent. I mean, they start preaching and you people are like, oh, 
Like my, my life has changed forever, even though Mike Hill has the wrong English accent. But uh, he's still effective over here in, in the States. He would say that. So um, there's a threat when it comes to talent because it means that oftentimes you can coast by on your own strength. And uh, many of you know, because he's preached here, uh, Tolian Chivijan. Uh, he's Billy Graham's grandson. He's the former senior pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And he had a massive moral failure uh, across the board. Uh, both he and his wife, this was in the Washington Post, so I'm not telling you anything that you can't find via Google. Um, you can probably find out what I had for dinner last night on Google. And uh, they had a, both of them had separate affairs. The marriage fell apart. He was fired from his job at Coral Ridge Presbyterian, and he dropped off the radar for a couple years. Uh, I had a little bit of interaction with him, uh, but he most recently wrote a piece on a website called xpastors.com, uh, which is great reading for someone who's a pastor, uh, by the way. Uh, but it is, it's a remarkable piece in, in a positive way, because what he said was, where once my heart was captivated by the message of the gospel, my attention had turned to the messenger of the gospel. So where once he was focused on the message of the gospel, but then he got full of himself and started thinking that he was somebody important. And uh, my grandfather tells the story. Uh, my grandfather was an executive of a, of a big company and uh, he, he was right, and he echoed uh, the owner of the Capitals on this. I don't know if he learned this from my grandfather, because my grandfather worked in Washington. But, um, and then my grandfather was a motivational speaker, which is not very motivating for me. But he, um, he would always say that it's, he was concerned in his work with the little things and the big things. And the stuff in the middle, he left to everybody else. And so when someone high profile or anybody really that would fly in to the airport, he would go out and get them uh, and greet them. Uh, and in one instance, he said that he was greeted by this person who was an engineering uh, professor from Europe. And, um, and uh, he, uh, my grandfather's, before he could get his name out, he, he said, uh, Mr. Ferguson? And he said, Dr. Ferguson? And then he said, here are my bags, and my grandfather picked the bags up and, and took them in, and, uh, and the guy was just, the guy actually sat in the back seat while my grandfather drove him uh, around, and um, who did you say you were? And he said his name, and uh, they, um, they went on, and uh, my grandfather was really put out by this, because he was just like, I know what your name is, it's Dr. Jerk. Uh, that, that's your name, you're a total incomplete uh, jerk, and uh, my grandfather said that he, um, he said somebody uh, actually was so put off by him that somebody uh, had the nerve to have uh, beer and pretzels delivered to his room at four in the morning. Uh, I'm not sure who that would have been, uh, but um, my grandfather was like that. But, uh, but what this man had forgotten was where he came from, that he's like the rest of us. He's nobody. Uh, he's nobody. And if you don't remember where you come from, uh, and if you don't stay focused on the message, it's real easy to get full of yourself and actually think that you're somebody important. I listened to a sermon recently by a preacher on the radio, checking out the competition, and, they, uh, and this preacher, actually, it was really good, and he was saying that he was addressing a seminary recently that tends to produce a large number of 
preachers who end up on TV, and I don't mean televangelists, I mean their worship services end up on the television, and, uh, and he said, uh, he, he cautioned them against that, and he said, he said, some of y'all are worried about how good you're going to look on TV. And he said, but I've never, and he's a famous preacher, he said, I've never allowed myself to be on television. And he said, because preachers that look good, he said, if you are hiding your ministry behind the cross of Jesus, you don't look good in front of television cameras. And so your whole ministry being hidden in the cross of Christ so that when people hear or see you, what they ought to hear and see is the gospel, right? They ought to hear and see uh, Jesus. And so one of the most crushing things that ever happened to me when I was in college, I went and spoke at a youth retreat, and this mother came up to me who was a chaperone on the weekend and was talking about how much her son really liked um, my talks. And I said, well, what, what part of the talks does he like? And she said, well, he said he liked it not so much for what you said, but how you said it. I just thought, shoot, right? That's the wrong thing, because what did he see? He saw me. And so we have to be very careful to not let talent actually get in the way of the gospel. And I'm not saying that this is what was happening with Apollos, but it's, I can tell you, he had to be careful. He had to be really, really careful, because there are also preachers who think that they can just climb up in the pulpit and get away with doing almost no preparation, and I can normally tell when that happens, and it really infuriates me uh, because there's no more important thing that they do. Just full stop. Uh, no more important thing that they do. And so Apollos, this is something that he would have to guard against. But what we also learn about Apollos, and we see this in verse 26, is even though he's speaking boldly in the synagogue, he's going for it. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Even though he's got talent, he's also got humility because he's being pulled aside by people who are, do you remember what their job was? We learned this last week. What'd they make? Tents, right? They're tent makers like Paul. They're tent makers. They worked in the field of leather goods. That's one thing. But who takes him aside? Whose name is first? The woman's name. The wife, Priscilla and Aquila. So for a tent maker, husband-wife couple to pull this preacher aside that everybody thinks just fell off the Christmas tree, I can imagine him saying, what could you possibly have to tell me? But Apollos was a humble guy and was willing to hear what Priscilla and Aquila had to say. He receives this teaching from a tent maker, even a woman. Well... This is exactly how the church is supposed to work. Uh, someone, uh, and I've asked this question too, who pastors the pastor? And sometimes I hear people say things like, well, you would know better than me. Don't be so sure. Right? Don't be so sure. Who pastors the pastor? Like, who's my pastor? Yes, we're going to get to that. It turns out it's you, reverend everybody. You're actually my pastor. Right? And I know that in our tradition, people will say things, no, no, the bishop is your pastor. I see the bishop on occasion. He comes to our church once a year. That's a pretty bad pastor, right? So I would never want to burden him with something that he's actually incapable of accomplishing. 
So my pastoring comes from you. And I've said this before that if I'm deficient in some uh, area, especially as it concerns uh, the word, uh, you have a responsibility and obligation to actually come and say to me, you know, you need to take a look at this, right? Because this is not, what's going on is not jiving uh, with what the scriptures uh, have to say. And I'm like the rest of you. I, uh, I love constructive criticism. It's just the best. And, uh, uh, but it's really important. But the only way that you can actually pastor me as the congregation is that you have to be like Priscilla and Aquila. And I don't mean in your, the way that you make this move uh, with your pastor, but in order to do that, you have to be immersed in the scriptures too. So there are three levels, I think, of acquainting yourself with the scriptures. The first is hearing the word of God. So if you come on Sunday mornings to an Anglican church, you're probably gonna hear quite a bit of scripture, right? So you've got that, you hear it. But then the next level would be to actually read it yourselves. And then finally, to study it. Because when you begin to study the Word of God, all of a sudden, it opens it up to a whole... You've already got it. Mary Kay Wilson, she nailed it because we pray this. We used to pray it the second Sunday in Advent that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Scriptures. That was Cranmer's prayer. And it was such a popular prayer that to this day, even though no one, they've lost track of the history of it, but the re, most Protestant churches celebrate the second Sunday in Advent as Bible Sunday because of Cranmer's Collect. So there you go. Very good. Extra cup of coffee for you. Okay. So, but studying the Word of God is, I mean, it's a totally different thing. So even like preparing for this, like who's Apollos? Why does it matter that he's from Alexandria? When did this happen? Uh, who are Priscilla and Aquila? Why are they important? What do you mean the baptism of John, but not the baptism uh, in the name of the Trinity? What difference is, like if you're just hearing it, you kind of, and there are some things in the Bible that are so dense. I don't know if you do this, but some Sundays the passage comes up and I just tune it out. I'm like, you know, it's like the guy that I love in South Carolina, who's at that little country church that I went and baptized a baby at. And uh, it's in Allendale, South Carolina, and some friends grew up at that church, and they wanted the baby baptized there. And they had a lay reader there who had been the senior warden for like 30 years. He did everything. He was acolyte, senior warden, reader, all at once. And it was Pentecost Sunday, and he got the reading from Acts of Pentecost, which has all the difficult, you know, Phrygia, Pamphylia, uh, Phoenicia, all those things. And, uh, and so he finally made, he made it pretty well through Phrygia and Pamphylia, but then he got to one and he just stopped his reading and he said, hard word. And then he just, met, just moved on. Uh, he just, just moved on. Uh, well, I mean, we all do that mentally, don't we? Hard word. And we just, you know, whether it's a parable that we don't understand or whether it's, you know, the so-and-so. I mean, even things like the genealogy and, and the gospels. Uh, I mean, who's actually ever sat down and read that whole thing? Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Uh, but uh, it actually is pretty amazing. And the only reason why it was included was, one, to draw the link of Jesus uh, to David. But more than that, for us to understand that God's promises can't be thwarted. That through, and you start reading some of those names, and there's some risque names on there. Like, remember Rahab, the prostitute? Remember, she was the one who had the home in the wall of Jericho? And 
uh, the spies came over who were camped out on the other side of the Jordan, and they came over, or if you're from Auburn, from the Jordan, and they came over uh, to, uh, they came over, and Rahab sheltered them, and God said, look, if you're in Rahab's apartment, I don't care if you're the meanest, low-down person, but if you have faith enough that being in there is going to save you from the destruction of the tumbling of the walls of Jericho, I will save you. And remember what Rahab did? She put a scarlet cord uh, out the window as a sign that refuge is available to all regardless of who you are. So there's actually a scarlet cord hanging out my office window, which Brian Helm is convinced is going to entice robbers to try to climb uh, up it. But it won't hold them because it's not held by much. Uh, But I I tell you all that because that's why Rahab's name is there. Not only is she related to Jesus, but, but that God even went so far as to use a prostitute, a woman of ill repute, Uh, to carry out his plan of salvation. It's a remarkable thing. And so when you begin to study the Word of God and you begin to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, it captivates you. So one of the things that I'm not, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not, I like John Wesley, but I think that he was off on some issues, uh, and maybe that's me being self-righteous. But one of the things that really amazes me about John Wesley and reading his journals is that he spoke in Scripture. Right? He didn't say, well, as John 3.16 says. He would just simply say it. He would weave it in and out of his everyday conversation to the point that people didn't know if it was Scripture or not. Uh, someone else who does that, and I think this, someone made a joke the other day uh, that Tim Keller has gotten so popular that people are accusing Jesus of quoting Tim Keller. Um, because I don't know if you know this, everybody, Tim Keller will often say something and everyone thinks that it's original to him, but it's not. He's getting it from somewhere else. And sometimes it's actually uh, from uh, the Bible. And the fact of the matter is, is when it comes to you pastoring me, uh, it's in most, for, well, I should say this, at most or at least a lot of mainline clergy, their people in the pews know their Bibles better than they do. Because I can tell you what's going to happen. My buddy Rob Sturdy, right out of seminary, he went to Trinity Church, Myrtle Beach. He was a young assistant, went to the Citadel, and then went straight to Oxford with me. And, uh, and when he came back, he had been the assistant rector at that church for a month when the rector took another call. And so Rob was all by himself. And his first week, he had a funeral. It was for the CEO and founder of Hooters Restaurants. I kid you not. Uh, that's who he was burying there in Myrtle Beach. And Rob got into the, um, into the hearse, and uh, the man driving the hearse smiled, and Rob smiled back at him, and they just sat there, and Rob said, well, I think we can go now. And the hearse driver said, where to? I'm new at this job. And Rob had only lived there for a month. He had no idea where the cemetery was, and this was before you know iPhones and GPS and all that kind of stuff. So Rob, in that context, what he found himself doing, and I asked him, I said, Rob, it's a big church, and you're real busy. Where do, you, where do you find time or what is your time for sermon prep? And he said, the time that it takes to read the gospel and then for me to get into the pulpit. Which meant what? I mean, it wasn't that he was slacking up, but he just had so many other issues going on in the ministry that he had actually neglected what was most important. Uh, now, you, you make a lot of hay out of a lot of one-on-one contact, uh, but uh, here, uh, my good buddy Rob learned his lesson and realized that he wasn't spending time uh, 
in, in the Word of God. And as David said, uh, the church is governed by the Bible. It's our rule of faith. And, uh, and so everything that we do ought to be measured against it. And where uh, we've gone amiss, uh, as uh, the Collect says, that we pray that God would write us uh, where we have gone uh, amiss. And so I don't think that this was a one-off Priscilla and Aquila pulling Apollos to the side, but they actually invested in him. They, they, they helped teach him. They helped acquaint him. Uh, they you know, actually helped him understand how do you handle the word of God, uh, which is what he was called to do. And then they sent him where? He wanted to go. Achaia, right? And the capital city is Corinth, actually. Athens was, and then they, they did a real number on Athens, and uh, the, the Romans moved it to Corinth. But Paul had just been there, but we say he had just been there, but this was actually over a couple years. And then Apollos went uh, and was preaching there in Corinth. And as we read uh, there, uh, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, that the Messiah, uh, was Jesus. Now this is remarkable because this is one of the hardest sacrifices a church can make. The relinquishment of its most precious resources. So not only do they have a you know, big-time preacher on their hands, they'd spent a lot of time investing in him and training him up only to what? Joyfully, uh, the brothers encouraged him and they wrote to the disciples to welcome and they encouraged him to actually go. This is totally counter to how the church behaves today because when we got something, we hold on to it with a death grip. And I think it's probably more true in our tradition. I'm not leaving, don't worry. I'm talking about getting rid of other things, other people. Uh, but, uh, but think about you know, planning a church, right? That, that would mean releasing a, a member of your clergy, uh, but is that enough? No, it would mean releasing a core group of your membership uh, and the type of people that would go plant a church are the kind of people who you don't want to lose, right? They're the ones who are probably actually tithing. They're the ones who are active and involved. They're going to provide leadership. Uh, they're not just along for the ride. They're going to help with this pastor plant uh, a church, right? That, that's, uh, that is sacrifice, but what Ephesus knew, what Corinth knew, what most churches, I would imagine, early on knew is that there was a greater gospel importance to getting the gospel out, greater imperative uh, than hoarding the resources for themselves. So actually, one of the major themes running throughout the book of Acts, and if you read Paul's letters, you hear this too, don't be self-consumed. Don't think that you're better than other people, and don't forget other people. So things like, we're taking up an... That's where Paul's actually on his way to Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And why is he going there? He's taking him money, right? He's taking him money because there was a great famine. And if there was any church that Paul would be on the outs with, it would be where? Jerusalem. In fact, later on, we're going to find that, that people are telling him, don't go because they are going to light you up when you get there. I mean, you may not survive. Don't go. And yet, 
That's exactly where he goes. And you can imagine the people saying, why are we giving money to those people? Why are we giving money to those people? Who are they? Well, the gospel is bigger and, and more important in the understanding of, of these relationships. Now, I'm not saying that this is happening uh, at the Advent, but that's something that we probably will have to, that's something we will have to grapple with if and when it comes to the place where we need to plant a church. Because you know as well as I do, and this is what makes it doubly complicated, there are very few places like the Advent. Actually, there may not be any place else like the Advent. There just may not. And because of that, uh, we ought to, on the one hand, want to go and plant churches that are preaching the gospel and doing the work and have an Advent flavor to them uh, all over Birmingham. Right? We ought to be doing that. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to lose what we have here because it is precious to us. I mean, one of the things uh, we actually, uh, for a while there, were praying about planting a church in Crestline Park um, across from uh, Saul's Juke Joint, if, if you know where that, across from where the open door used to be, uh, for those of you that remember that. Uh, and uh, when we were talking to people about whether or not they would want to go, many people were reluctant. And one of the reasons why was they said, you know, there's just something about coming downtown. Like, we like being anchored in downtown. We like the location. And I get that totally. Uh, but there is a sense in which what is our level of sacrifice, our level of willingness to be uh, in order to make sure that the gospel goes out? I mean, that's even come up here with a, a real-life example would be our curates, right? Stephen McCarthy, Adam Young... Uh, some of you in this room have come up to me and said, we got to keep them. We got to keep them. But the whole idea of it was what? We keep them for two years and then what? You know, yeah, we send them out, right? You go out because we don't want to hoard those resources. And even though we'd want to keep them, it's not like we want to get rid of them. Sending them out uh, is more important uh, than keeping them. So that, uh, that's stewardship, uh, steward of uh, those uh, resources. And then what you see are the dividends of that investment, where Apollos goes and he powerfully refutes the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus and the church flourished. And of course, the more people you add to the church, more people, more problems. So go read 1 Corinthians. Uh, someone once said, pastoral ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. Uh, and and so, uh, but what they saw was a large and vibrant congregation come about in Corinth through the itinerant ministry of Paul and the preaching ministry of uh, Apollos. Now, later on in Ephesians, people started picking out their favorite preacher, and you can go read about that, and there's a cult of personality there. That's also the threat of talent. But what they saw is that when they invest in those individuals and send them out, uh, many sons and daughters are called into fellowship with God the Father through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, how I would end this is that uh, I pray that we uh, as a church would raise up Apolloses and that we uh, as a congregation would also be willing to minister and pastor one another uh, and invest in one another. One of the things that I really love doing here at the Advent, uh, one, I realize that I'm young, 
but, and I'm grateful for this, but when I became dean, uh, I was worried about what the perception would be being so young, especially amongst folks who were older. And uh, the search committee showed me the survey that some of y'all filled out. And they said, well, the only one of the reasons why we called you is because all the old folks were the ones who liked you, right? They, they actually were hoping that, that you would be uh, the one, uh, more than just knowing who was going to bury them, uh, but also, um, but for whatever reason it was. But one of my favorite things to do is to sit down and to hear their stories and their testimonies about how God has used the Advent in this ministry. Because in our day and age, we have a very short memory, right? And we easily forget the shoulders of those who have gone on before us. And that's one of the reasons why we started the magazine, was that we could profile some of those things that have kind of been lost uh, to time, but were powerful testimonies to the grace of God uh, in this place. And so that we would continue um, uh, to pastor one another, and that uh, God might use us uh, to further his kingdom uh, in Birmingham and beyond. Questions, comments, concerns? You want me to take you aside or you want me to minister you? No, right, right here is fine. Right here is fine. Um, reminding us of Colic, at Kramer's Colic, we've taken the words out of the 5 o'clock service pamphlet, and I would request that they be put back in. Which words? The gospel and the reading. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, see, I don't even know these things. Okay. All right. Come to the do 5 o'clock. Do you bring your Bible? See, this is mutual pastoring happening right now. I mean, so that's, you know, people uh, give us grief about because most Episcopal churches, you don't take your Bible. But, I mean, just following along when the readings are being done helps you navigate your Bible and avoid, you know, being embarrassed when people say turn to the book of Acts. Uh, But also, again, it's not just hearing it, it's reading it and actually engaging with the text. Because the fact of the matter is, like, what is the Word of God? Is it this book? I mean, it's a book, right? So if I threw it against the wall, all of you would gasp. But it's a book, but it's not, is it? It's the Word of God is, is, is this. It's the words, right? It's the actual word. It's not the leather and the paper and the, and the ink. And, uh, and so there's something remarkable that happens when you begin to engage the Scriptures because actually what they do is they engage you. Troy. That was loud, sorry. <laughs> First of all, uh, I thought you said you would never put PowerPoint in the, in, the, in the nave today, but I thought your nave presentation was great today. Well, I don't Visually, think, did I say that? Yeah, yeah I thought well, you did. Well, I'm a liar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what am I saying? And, uh, Saved by but grace. But I thought it was great because you, it helped us visualize a lot of the ministries that are going on. Yeah, so what my favorite part was was seeing some of you, like, start to affect a stroke when, <laughs> when you saw the screen because you thought, what in the world is going on here? Uh, but, you know, because we're a downtown congregation, when we gather together as, as the people of God, we do that on Sunday morning, and we also do that through Bible studies and small groups throughout the week, but because we are a downtown congregation and we only basically gather corporately on Sundays, it's very hard to communicate what's going on. I mean, it was so, it, the number of people who come up to me and say, well, I never heard da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's been in the adventurer for three months. It's been on the website. I've made announcements about it. And so you, you can't over-communicate that enough. But I think, too, getting to a place where you understand 
that you know we're not just individuals dropping a check in a plate. Like I mean, we're in this together, and God has given us a ministry. And I think it's much more effective to actually be able to see it, to make it tangible, to make it understandable, intelligible, uh, in a way that you know people say, oh yeah, we got something. You know, we got something going on with Rwanda. Well, what do you have going on with Rwanda? I don't know. You know, or. Uh, I don't know, just uh, hopefully that, you know, people especially who learn visually. Right. Well, we're visual, and so I thought visualizing was very helpful. One of the other current changes going on that may, perhaps you elaborate a little bit of how that uh, is an extension of the ministry. Let's talk about 5 o'clock, moving it back into the nave and sort of what, because I know that's more than just a location issue. Would you talk about uh, what's behind that? Yeah, so the 5 o'clock started off in the main church, which we call the nave, um, which is a fancy word for uh, the bottom of a boat. And um, we started out in there, and then we moved it in here. And so location had a lot to do with it. Uh, It's a wonderful service. It's a great service. But let's say that you're just average Joe, and you wander in off the street, and you walk through those doors, and all of a sudden everyone looks at it. It's like creepy church, right? It's sort of, you can't, here in the nave, you can kind of slip in, and and people aren't staring you down. Um, And even though it provides a source of intimacy, uh, let's face it, this is a lunchroom. I mean, it's the world's nicest lunchroom, uh, but it's, it's a lunchroom where... There's no doubt what that space was built for, right? No one's going to mistake it for anything else other than a church. And so that's one thing. Uh, The other thing is, too, there's something to be said about the fishbowl theory, right? You get a little fish, that fish is only going to get as big as its bowl, right? And so if you got a little bowl, you want to keep a fish little. So we've basically maxed out this space here and and moving it there. It will feel like the congregation probably gets swallowed up, uh, but I think, too, to uh, help people understand that that's a real service, a full-fledged service. It's not just something else, but also that that kind of worship can happen in a space like that and can be done well, uh, and, and that it's not in opposition to anything that we might do on Sunday mornings. So it's, it's a logistical consideration. It's a missional consideration. And uh, we're really excited about it. And tonight uh, is the first, the first time it will be moved back into the nave in, in a couple years. I don't think that they're doing screens. And again, that, that, that's an exception. Um, I, don't, I think that they're, they're, they look, I mean, you saw it. They look terrible uh, in there, and it just doesn't work. So I don't want anyone getting any idea that I'm ripping out the organ and putting up screens or something like that, which is where everybody tends to go. It's the worst-case scenario. Okay. Well, good. I got to get to work. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.